So Revelation chapter 9, and we want to begin in verse 13. Uh, Last week we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 9, and um, if you missed out on last week or maybe the weeks preceding that, then uh, I should invite you to check out the podcast. It's up to date. All the um, times that we've spent in Revelation are on there, and so you can um, get caught up. But as we've come to chapters 8 and 9, we are in the midst of the trumpet judgments. Remember that the Revelation has three sets of judgments. The first set uh, are the seven seals, and then the second set are the seven trumpets. And the third set that we've not come to yet are the seven bowl judgments. And one of the things that we've talked about before, but that bears repeating, um, is the the reciprocal nature of this book, that, that it's it's circular. It's not linear. Some books of Scripture are linear. They have a starting point and a middle and an end, and they move that way. But the Revelation isn't like that. It it turns itself over and again. It takes us through the story of human history and launches us forward to the end of days and shows us what the great day of the Lord will be like. And then it pulls us back to keep talking about the nature of what God is doing in the world. And so we find ourselves here in chapter 8 and chapter 9 talking about these things again. What's going on as we get closer to the end of days? We've we've been given a picture at the end of chapter 6 of what it will look like at the end of days when the day of the Lord comes and how those who are outside of faith in Christ, those who are unbelieving in their hearts, will be looking for a hiding place, longing for cover and protection, wanting wanting to be freed from the wrath of God and the Lamb, and yet they will find no cover. And we've been reminded of the way that we can stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb. Chapter 7 was all about how those who stand on the day of God's wrath are, are the numbered tribes of Israel and the unnumbered multitudes of the nations. And so there's a picture there for us that the way that we find covering and protection on the day of God's wrath is to be numbered among the numberless people of God, to have faith in Jesus Christ, to be counted on and secured in his holy presence. And then chapter 8 took us to the seventh seal and the first of the trumpets and walked us through what these first four trumpets were about. And you remember that, that they show us these, these plagues that come upon the earth, much like the plagues that came upon the children of Egypt as, as God was preparing for the people of Israel to move into the land of promise and out of the land of bondage. There was a first trumpet in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8 that we categorized as the plague of a burnt earth, how God sent fire down upon the earth mixed with blood and hail and brought judgment upon the physical world itself. And there was a plague of of a bloody sea in chapter 8, the second trumpet showed how God was going to turn the water into blood and a third of the, a third of the, the water was going to be affected. Uh, the living creatures that lived in the water died and the ships that were in the water, a third of them were destroyed. And we talked about how as the days come to their end and we get closer to the great day of the Lord, there's going to be increasing judgment poured out upon the world that affects our normal way of life. And the third trumpet that brought about a, a bitter water and broken lives talked about how a star, wormwood, fell and it bittered the watered, waters and caused people to die. And then there was a fourth trumpet. We marked it as a blanketed sky. You remember that a third of the, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, they were diminished, they were darkened. And so there's increasing nightfall and darkness on the earth and a reminder to us of the difficulty of days. And it was a reminder of all the things the prophets had talked about that were coming at the end of time. Chapter 9 brought the fifth, the fifth trumpet and the first woe. Remember that at the end of chapter 8, verse 13, John saw and heard an eagle soaring over that brought a, a word of warning for those who were there at the remaining trumpets, the remaining woes that were to come. Chapter 9 presents two of those. The fifth and sixth trumpets are the first and second woes. 
We talked last week about the fifth trumpet, the first woe. And that fifth trumpet, the first woe, brought plaguing locusts upon the earth. But remember that they weren't real locusts. They, they were different. They had tails that locusts don't have like scorpions. And they had faces that were somewhat human-like and somewhat horse-like. And they were allowed to bring destruction upon the earth. But the destruction they brought wasn't to the green grass. And it wasn't to the trees and plant life like locusts would normally bring to the earth. Instead, it was to mankind. They were, they were going to sting and torment and trouble a third of the third of the population there was going to be this this such powerful torment that mankind was going to find himself longing for the deliverance that only comes by death and yet death wouldn't come and you remember that in the midst of talking about that torment of these plaguing locusts there was the reminder that God was going to protect his own people That while his people would be present for these difficult things, they wouldn't have to endure them. They wouldn't be themselves stung or tormented by these locusts. It's a reminder here that something great and powerful and dreadful is at work. They're not real locusts. They're not ordinary plagues of, of these insects. This is something much more powerful at work. Something demonic and dreadful. And that plays into how we see chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. Tonight I want us to see in this blasting of the sixth trumpet and the outpouring of the second woe, I want us to see that we are conformed to and consumed by what we worship. That's the reminder here. We are conformed to and consumed by what we worship. And at the end of the lesson, I want us to realize this just one overarching principle, and that is that God will either fight for us or he will fight us. Let's read together chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. John says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, John says. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and sulfur, And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. John wants us to understand that that God is hearing his people. In fact, The first section, verses 13 to 15 here, we would title an answer to prayer. You see in verse 13 that John says that the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. The difference between this sixth trumpet and the fifth trumpet before it is the nature of the trouble the fifth trumpet brought about troubling that was, that was merely an act of torment, a, a stinging pain, a difficulty in the body, but not death itself. But now death is coming. And the reason that death is coming is because God has heard the prayers of his people. You remember that back in chapter 6 and verse 9, we, we encountered the opening of the fifth seal And the opening of the fifth seal showed us a scene 
of saints beneath the altar of God. Saints from every time and every period. Saints who were slain on account of the word of God and their testimony, the witness that they bore. John saw those saints from throughout history crying out with a loud voice. They were shrill and shrieking in their plea before God. And what they were asking for was vengeance. They wanted God to vindicate them, to plead their cause, to fight on their behalf. They said, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those who were crying out beneath the altar, those slain on account of their faith in the Lord Jesus were told in chapter 6 to be clothed in white robes. That white robe, you remember, is a symbol of the righteousness of God, of the righteousness given to us by our faith in Jesus Christ. And they were told to rest a little longer until their number was completed. So there's a scene there, a, a point to the fact that there are many who will die on account of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And until that number is complete, until it's been brought to its fulfillment, God's plan and purposes in the world aren't done. But God tells them that while they're to be at rest, indeed He hears them. There's a reminder of that in the opening verses of chapter 8. In chapter 8 and verse 1, there's the There's the breaking of the seventh seal and you remember that it's accompanied by a half an hour of silence in heaven. That silence is a, a time when all those in the heavenly realms let the weight of what is coming rest upon them. There's this pause in all the activity where we realize that God's wrath and judgment are about to be poured out on the earth. This is not a little thing. It is a great move of God to fight on behalf of His people. So we should allow the heaviness of the moment to rest upon us. And in chapter 8, as the seventh seal is broken and silence is occurring in heaven, there is then the response. You remember that an angel, he lifts incense to the Lord. God somehow uses this angelic being to bring the prayers of the saints, of all the saints, John tells us, up to his very presence. Those prayers that are on the altar of the Lord. Those prayers that have been lifted up for God to avenge the cause of his people. Those prayers for justice and righteousness to prevail. So now when John says in chapter 9 and verse 13 that the sixth trumpet is blasted and he hears a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, We're right, I think, to understand that what it is that John is hearing is an answer to prayer. The cries of the saints of the Lord for justice have been going up for centuries, and now God is going to adjudicate their cause. He is going to try their case, and he is going to pour out judgment and wrath and punishment upon their evildoers. John says that he heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. And here is what they said. They were saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the voice from the altar, which I think we're right to understand is the prayers of the saints, gives instruction to the sixth angel who blows the sixth trumpet to release the four angels that have been held at the great river Euphrates. So the question comes to us, who are these four angels? And the reality is, we don't know. Uh, We might be drawn back to chapter 7 and verse 1 and think that these are the four angels that were holding back the winds at the four corners of the earth. You remember there that uh, they were holding back the ability to harm, pour out harm upon the earth But because of their location and because of the nature of their their restraint, I think we should see these not as as holy angels, those who are uh, working on behalf of God, those who dwell in his presence, but instead as demonic beings. 
these angels, these four angels that John talks about in chapter chapter 9 and verse 14, they are bound, John says, at the great river Euphrates. That language of being bound and then what he'll talk about again in, in verse 15 of being released, that language of being bound and released is the same language that's used of Satan himself. So I think we're to see that these are demonic beings who, like the king or the sovereign of the locust that we read about um, in verses 11, 9, 10, and 11 of chapter 9, these four angels are the sovereigns. They're the, they're the controllers of the demonic horde of horses and riders that are going to be released out upon the world to bring judgment and death to a third of those who dwell on the earth. He says that they were bound at the great river Euphrates, probably in part one of the things that John is trying to talk about is that there's long been for the people of God a symbol of the line between uh, between freedom and bondage, between uh, a land where we enjoy peace and a land that is filled with warfare. And the Euphrates River has been a part of that line uh, for the empire, the Roman Empire, that river is a line of of battle for generations it has been because on the other side of the river Euphrates was the Parthian Empire and the Romans and the Parthians were always at each other's throats and always on the brink of warfare. And so in the background for John's readers would have been this understanding that the river is a line between peace and war, between, between ordinary life and bloodshed. And so this is a symbol of the restraint of the borderland that has always been but now will be transgressed. Those angels, these demonic beings that are held at the great river Euphrates are going to be released. And the reason they're going to be released is because the hour of the Lamb's work has come. Look at verse 15. So the voice has come up from the altar telling this sixth angel to release the four angels, demons, who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so it says in verse 15, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. I want you to let that sit for just a minute. Because oftentimes in the Revelation, we have a description of one thing and then a reality of another. Remember all the way back to chapter 5, and there was a description of the roar of a lion, but what did we see? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. You recall how there's the description in chapter 7 of the numbered tribes of Israel, but then what John saw was the unnumbered multitude of the nations. And here again, in apocalyptic language, we have a description of one thing. Four angels that are held, restrained, bound at the great river Euphrates. But then in verse 16, as we see that they're released, we no longer are talking about the four angels. Instead, we're talking about 200 million cavalrymen, horses and riders. The language here seems to be ever-expanding. It's opening up to help us comprehend the wonder of what God is in control of to bring about and accomplish His purposes in the world. John says the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. It's hard to know exactly what John means here. But I'm taken to think that what John means when he talks about the hour, the day, the month, and the year is not one particular moment in time, but an era, a season, a, a particular juncture where in the story of human history, God is ready to pour out a measured amount of judgment upon the world. It's not that John is describing in this, this overwhelming demonic horde of cavalry men uh, um, great battle. That's probably not what he is intending to say, and we'll talk about why. Instead, it's to say that history has been going along at a measured pace, and now we've gotten further along in the story of human history 
And the day is approaching of the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of the return of the Lord Jesus and the the consummation of human history. And as we get closer to that day coming, the difficulties and troubles of this world will increase. They will get increasingly hard and difficult and and the troubles of life will, will be much greater. And because we're getting closer to that, we've come to a season when it's right for God to pour out a measured amount of judgment upon Upon the world. Remember that in the description of the seal judgments, there was a restrained amount of judgment that God allowed to be poured out on the world. It was a fourth, right? A fourth of the earth was affected. Here in the trumpet judgments, it's a third of the earth affected. We're increasing the judgment. When we get to the end of days and we talk about the bold judgments, it will be the entirety of the world affected by the outpouring of the wrath of God upon the world. And so God is ramping up the trouble in the earth. But I want you to remember the reason that God is ramping up trouble and difficulty and hardship and torment in the world is to cause those who are turned against him to turn to him. The whole point of chapter 6, verses 20 and 21 is to tell us the reason God was doing this was to turn the hearts of the wicked. But we'll talk about the fact that that's not what happens. John says these four angels that had been prepared for this moment and everything that they represent, this overwhelming horde of horses and riders, are released to kill a third of mankind. And then it says in chapter six and or chapter nine and verse sixteen that the number of the mounted troops was twice ten thousand times ten thousand. But then notice what John says: I heard their number. So John is watching this scene unfold. The sixth angel has blown the sixth trumpet. A voice has risen from the altar of God to say, "Vindicate." us, plead our cause, fight on our behalf, avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth. And that voice has given instruction to the angel to say the way that you're going to avenge us, the way that you'll fight our cause is to release to release the instrument, the, the pathway of judgment upon the world. Release those angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates upon those who dwell on the earth. And they've been released. And then John says, the angels, they seem to fall out of view. And instead, what comes into view is an overwhelming mass of horses and riders. Uh, 200 million, John tells us. But then he says, I couldn't even count them all. When John says at the end of verse 16, I heard their number, it's because he couldn't count them. He's watching these horses and riders gallop into the world to accomplish their demonic purpose of tormenting and troubling and ultimately taking the lives of the wicked. And John can't comprehend it. He has to be told what their size, what their number is. That's a way of reminding us of the overwhelming force that God will bring to bear in order to accomplish his purpose, to pour out a measured amount of judgment upon the world in the hopes of bringing men and women to repentance and faith. Then John tells you in verse 17 about these horses and those who rode them. He says, this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. And by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. John has talked about in these opening verses an answer to prayer, and now John talks about an attempt to provoke. This is an attempt on the part of God Almighty to provoke a response of repentance and belief. That's what's at work here. 
Why does God allow these hordes of demonic beings to go forward and ravage the earth? It's because he desires for those who are wicked to turn back to him. He's trying to shock the system. He's trying to bring conviction to the heart. He's trying to take those who are caught in their sin and hardened away from him and shake them so that they would turn back to him. He describes the color of these horses. He says that they're they're colored with colors of red and blue and yellow. It's vibrant. Fire, sapphire, sulfur. And he says that the same colors that they wear in their breastplates and in their coloring, in their covering, those same colors are coming from them, out of their mouths, out of their very being. It says that it comes out of them smoke and fire and sulfur. These are the plagues by which men are killed. It's interesting that John talks about this, this horde that comes from the east, from beyond the Euphrates into the land that was once marked with peace and now is marked by warfare. The prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah foretold of an eschatological battle, something that would come at the end of days when a great army would march from the north. John seems to have co-opted that, to take in that imagery and those understandings of the prophets and to write about them here in this way as he reminds us of God's control over the events of earth, as he brings about these days of torment and trouble in an attempt to bring men to himself. When John talks about these horses and their riders, the fact that they were under the control of these these angels that were bound and restrained is a reminder that they are not unlike the locusts of the fifth trumpet the fifth trumpet that showed us that these locusts came from the bottomless pit. These are demonic beings. This is a spiritual battle with physical, earthly effects. It might be difficult for us to see that at first, but when we look at the effects in verses 20 and 21, we realize that this is a great spiritual battle that God has set up and that God is waging. And he's using all the forces of earth to accomplish his purposes including those that have rebelled against him. It isn't a human army. It isn't, these aren't real horses that have come against his people. You need only look at the description of them in verse 19 to realize that. For John says the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The idea that John describes the horses tails as being like serpents with heads is it's a way of saying the these are not ordinary horses this is not an ordinary army these are not ordinary cavalry units this is not an ordinary battle unless we should think that perhaps what john is doing is describing some futuristic military power that we've not yet conceived of we need to remember here that this text like all other texts of scripture cannot mean now what it could not have meant to John's original readers. That's one of the underlying principles of of interpreting Scripture is that it can't mean now what it could not have meant to the original audience. That's not to say that it doesn't come with greater application. And Jesus shows us that throughout his ministry as he takes Old Testament passages and applies them to himself and shows how they have greater fulfillment and fullness. But the original meaning is the original meaning always and ever. So when John says here that these horses, they have tails that are like serpents with heads, it's not a way of describing a real horse with a powerful tail. It's not a way of describing a futuristic military machine that we've not yet conceived of. Instead, I think this is John's way of saying there's something demonic at work. There are angels in rebellion against Almighty God that God is now employing to accomplish his purpose of tormenting the earth and bringing death to a third of the people who dwell on the earth. And this demonic horde comes forward to wound, to destroy the lives of those who dwell on the earth. One of the things that several of the commentaries point out 
is that the fact that the plaguing is threefold, that it comes by sulfur and by fire and by smoke, is a way of saying that God employs a full range of of things, of, of troubles and difficulties and diseases and, and powers in order to accomplish the purpose of taking the lives of a third of those who dwell on the earth. So as we get closer to the end of days and we see difficulty and hardship ramping up, I think what we would see and what we will see if we live long enough is that there are all sorts of things that begin to take out the lives of mankind in increasing proportion. I don't think this is John's way of saying there's going to be one massive battle where a third of Earth's population, two billion people, are wiped out at once, but instead to say that all across the world there are going to be the evidences of a, of a spiritual battle that has physical effects where mankind's life is being taken by leaps and bounds through all sorts of means employed by God who is sovereign over all. God's answering the prayers of the righteous and attempting to provoke repentance in the hearts of the unrighteous. And yet what we see in the end is that there is an apathy toward the Lord because of their devotion to their idols. God has brought punishment, difficulty, turmoil, trouble upon the earth. He's brought plague after plague. He's caused the economy to suffer. He's caused their their food sources to suffer. He's caused them to suffer physically as they've been stung by plaguing locusts that have a scorpion-like bite. God's put them in the dark in order to increase their longing for wholeness and for righteous living. And now God has brought down death upon a third of the earth, not unlike what he did at the end with the tenth plague that came upon the house of Egypt when God took the firstborn of every family that home was not marked by the blood of the lamb. And God has done all of this in an attempt to provoke a response of repentance trying to draw men and women back to himself. And yet mankind, those who dwell on the earth, John says, those who are outside of God and the Lamb, they remain apathetic toward the punishment of God. John says in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. We, most of us know what it's like, either as children or as parents. We know what it's like to See a child err and then face judgment, punishment. And some of us had the experience of being the younger sibling and watching our older siblings be punished. And some of us were wise enough to go, that's not going to happen to me. Um, Russell was four years older than me. He grew up four feet down the hall from me. He got a lot of things brought down upon him. And I used to watch and say, that ain't going to be me. Not because I wanted to live righteous or wanted to obey my parents, but because I didn't want to face the judgment. I'll never forget one day we went to church on Sunday night and we were uh, members of a church about like Elkdale, in a lot of ways, a lot like Elkdale. And uh, our Sunday night service was a little more informal than Sunday morning service, but not overwhelmingly so in the mid-1990s. And Russell got asked to take up the evening offering along with three or four other boys in his class. But he had shorts on. Do you know what happened when we got home that night? There was a lecture unlike any lecture has ever been given. There was wailing and gnashing of teeth because of the sheer horror that he wore shorts to church, heaven forbid. And I looked at that and said, I ain't going to ever wear any shorts in church. And I don't think I ever have. 
The point is this. We see others punished, tormented, troubled. And many of us with tender hearts think that's not going to be me. Let me do whatever it takes to avoid that. But if your heart is hard, and if your neck is stiff, if your eyes are blind to the truth, then punishment doesn't provoke a response of repentance. It only hardens you. And like the Ammonites who dwelled in the land promised to Abraham and his descendants, God is pouring out wrath both to provoke a response of repentance and also to prove that when judgment comes in undiluted measure, in full measure, he will be perfectly justified in causing those who are in rebellion against him to face the reality of their sin. John says that the rest of mankind, two-thirds of the earth, four billion people in our day who were not killed by these plagues, they did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. John tells us what the issue is. The issue is what they worship. See, some people think that, it, that worship is a choice, that, that we can either worship or not worship, but that's not the reality. The reality is not whether you or I or any other person will worship. The question is, what will we worship? Whom will we worship? Because we are all worshiping something. We are created that way. We've been made and formed by holy God to give our devotion and our allegiance and our commitment and our attention and to prioritize something and someone in our lives. And for us, we've chosen by faith to give the place of our devotion and love and commitment to God who has revealed himself in his son Jesus Christ. And there are many across the world who give themselves to foreign things, idols of gold or wood or silver. And there are still others in the world in which we live who are not so foolish as to give themselves to something man-made in terms of an object, but they've given themselves to their recreation or their career or their family. And they worship those things above all question is not will we worship it is what or who we will worship and John says that the issue for those who remained on the earth is that they wouldn't turn away from what they worshiped they have been conformed to and consumed by what they worship their idols and they don't see the foolishness of this Psalm 115 is a wonderful reminder to us of the nature of these follies. And I'd like to turn there for a moment and remind us of that. The psalmist says in Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And then the psalmist goes on to instruct and admonish the nation Israel, trust in the Lord. House of Jacob, trust in the Lord. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Because the psalmist understands that what we worship, who we trust in, what we give our allegiance to, will both conform us and consume us. Those who make idols become like them. And that is the bearing out of Revelation chapter 9. God has poured out judgment in measured reality on a third of the earth and taken the lives of countless billions of people in an effort to turn the hearts of the rest of the world toward him. But because their hearts are fixed on things that are false, 
they are apathetic toward his punishment. They will not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols. George Eldon Ladd offers a helpful word here. He says that idols can be viewed from two different perspectives. In and of itself, an idol has no real existence. Paul teaches us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This viewpoint is reflected in John's description of idols as of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot either see or hear or walk. The motif that idols are lifeless wood or stone or metal occurs in the Old Testament. Psalm 115, 135, Daniel chapter 5 and is frequently found in Jewish apologetic literature. From another perspective, however, demons are seen to stand behind idol worship. And while meats offered to idols are not rendered unclean, since an idol has no real existence, nevertheless, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Therefore, sacrifice to idols involves one in partnership with demons. That same tension between idols as lifeless wood, stone, and yet symbolic of demons appears in the present passage. So what John is saying is that people have given themselves over to the works of their own hands. But in doing so, what they've actually done is bought into the demonic world that has positioned itself against God and the Lamb. And because of that, the very thing that they have given themselves over to will be the source of their destruction. God has used the demonic hordes to accomplish the judgment and destruction of a third of the earth. And yet the remainder of the world in rebellion against him will not be awakened and turned back to the Lord because they are devoted to the very thing that has been the source of the destruction of their friends and neighbors. Notice that John says it's, it's, not, just, it's not just that they will not turn away from worshiping the idol. It's also that they won't give up what accompanies the worship of the idol. You see, one of the things that we have to remember is that idol worship is always accompanied by immoral practice. And John reminds us of that in verse 21. He says, Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So the people who have positioned themselves, who've given themselves over to the worship of idols, whatever form those take, not only will they not give up the object of their worship, they also won't give up their immoral lifestyle. They love their sin too much. There are two lessons that are worthy for us to remember here. And they first start with this statement. God will fight for you. God will fight for you, you who belong to him. No act of injustice ever goes without adjudication in the governance of God. But you must be patient and allow God to work his will in his way all the way throughout the centuries of Christian history, those who have been slain on account of the word of God and their witness for him have been crying out for vengeance. God, fight on our behalf. And all along the way, God has been giving them the assuring words, take refuge and comfort and rest in the righteousness of Christ and trust me to fight for you. Because the day will indeed come when God will fight for his people. The day will come when God has had enough and he will plead the cause of the righteous. I used to wonder in certain settings if my mother would ever stand up for me. As a child, there were many settings where I felt like mama should have come to my defense. She should have pled my cause. After all, I was in the right. Come on, mom. And she never did. She let me go on, fight my own battles, learn how to be mature. And I wondered, would there ever be a line that would be crossed that my mother would stand up for me? I wondered that until September of 2014. Mother and I were in the hospital. We were waiting on my uncle to 
get out of surgery. It was a long, long wait. It was some many hours of surgery that day. And these two ladies came into the waiting room and they began to talk amongst themselves. And as one will do, we eavesdropped. And we heard them talking about the search that their church was undergoing for a youth minister. And at the time, I was not employed in ministry and had been looking and searching. And as we got to talking, they listened to us and we listened to them. Eventually, we all talked and they, they said, oh, excuse me, are you in the ministry? I said, well, not at the moment, but yes. And, and they said, well, we're looking for a youth minister. Would you send us a resume? I said, well, what... What church is it? And they told me the name of the church. And I said, I, I already did. <laughs> Pregnant pause. And without batting an eye, my mother said, what? Was he not good enough for you? <laughs> they quickly found another waiting room. And from that moment on, I have never wondered if my mother stood in my corner or not. For the long centuries of the story of Christian people, men and women who have given their lives on account of the word of God and their witness for the Lord Jesus have wondered, God, will you ever fight for us? And one day at the end of time, the Father will dispatch the Son and the Son will redeem all of his saints and he will destroy all of his foes. And for the rest of eternity, the people of God will know that God fights for his own. God will fight for you, you who belong to him. But I also want you to know that God will fight for you, you who are far from him. God wants all people to believe in him. He wants all people to seek him. He wants all people to obey him. And because God is so committed to the redemption of the nations, he will at one point in the story of human history rain down a measured, restrained punishment in order to turn the hearts of the wicked to the right. So if you find yourself outside of Christ and unbelieving in your heart, if it's your son or your daughter, if it's your grandchild or your neighbor, if it's your coworker or your enemy who is far from the Lord, plea for their redemption and remind them of the warnings of, of the Psalms that if we hear his voice, in the slightest, if there's but the faintest whisper of the good shepherd's voice, with full conviction, we must make haste to turn to him. We must recognize that God longs to bring us to himself, and so we must repent of our sin. For remaining indifferent, acting in rebellion, will bring about his full and undiluted wrath. And the God who is fighting to save us will become the God who is fighting to destroy us. And he will win. It is the reason, dear friends, that among other things, every week at the end of the time of preaching, we give opportunity for people to respond. I know that most of us make our decisions in other places and we come to the Lord's house and the gathering of God's people only to report what we've already decided and determined in our hearts. But every now and then, the Spirit of God strikes upon a heart far from Him. And there begins to burn inside of that one who was lost a heart for repentance and a desire to come into the family of God by faith. And so we stand and we plead for sinners to come. And we honor that moment because we believe that it just might be on this Lord's day that some unbelieving person among us would turn to the Lord Jesus in faith 
because they hear his voice. God fights for us, we who believe in him. And he fights for us, we who don't believe in him. Because at the heart of God is the desire that all peoples should rejoice and be glad in him. Father, I pray that we would take comfort in the knowledge that you hear and you answer our prayers. May we recognize, Lord, that our lives are just a moment, just just a blip in the story of human history. And so while it may seem, Lord, as though our, our experiences of difficulty or injustice at the hands of the wicked are long ignored, the reality is, God, that they will be soon answered in your timing. May we know that, God, one day you will release powers at the appointed hour, time, day, month, year, to bring judgment upon the world, to demonstrate that you do fight for your people to answer the prayers of those who have requested your your vengeance, your justice. And even, Lord, as you do so, you will do so with a commitment to your own desire to redeem a people of every nation and tribe and tongue, pouring out wrath in measure so that those who remain might turn to you. So help us, God, even as we're committed to you and trusting in you, certain that you will fight for us. Help us, God, to join you in the fight for the nations, to plead with our neighbors and to plead with the nations to come to faith in Jesus Christ before it is too late, to see the evidences of a broken and fallen world and the evidences of your spirits leading. And not to remain indifferent, given over to the worship of idols and the practice of immorality. But instead to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and to come to you before it is too late. Father, we recognize that the day of the wrath of the Lamb is coming. So help us to be ready, looking forward joyfully to the return of the Lamb and living obediently on mission in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.